In this podcast, we review our discussion of the roles of the priests as it relates to worship, worship tied to the prayers, to the giving of the atonement money, and to the cleansing rituals before entering the tabernacle. We see how these can be used to look at our own priestly walk and how we're to serve God. Next, we move on to a consideration of the artisans God chose to prepare and build the tabernacle, talking about the fact that he gifts us for whatever service he calls us to. And finally, we touch on the Sabbath as it's uniquely given to Israel and the sabbatic principle as it applies to all of us. We consider all of this in light of how God calls us to walk in his ways and how for people to be saved, they need to come to him on his terms and we need to serve him specifically as he calls us to. I hope you're blessed by this podcast. Welcome to Studies in Exodus. This series of podcasts is produced by Sephora Audio Productions. These sessions were presented at Foothill Bible Church in Lincoln, California. Your speaker is Pastor Jeff Cringan. Join us now as the class is about to start. As we've been looking at the tabernacle, the priesthood, and all that's tied to the sacrificial system, we've been doing that, of course, all in light of how it pictures Christ, how it's typified by him. I like what Dr. McGee notes in his discussion on this section. We're looking at the consecration services. He said, consecration is what God does rather than what we do. I hear so much today about consecration services where people promise to do something. I have promised God big things in the past and never quite made good. I don't like to think of that as being consecration. It's not what I promise him. Rather, consecration is coming to God with empty hands, confessing our weaknesses and our inability to do anything, then letting God do the rest. If you read the prayers of Moses, Elijah, David, and Samuel in the Old Testament, and Paul in the New Testament, you'll find that these men never came to God on the basis of what they were, who they were, or what they promised God that they would do. I've attended faggot services for years. I've watched people put a little chip or a limb on the fire and then give a testimony about the things they were going to do for God. I've heard enough promises at those faggot services to turn the world upside down for God. Unfortunately, many of these promises are never kept because we really do not have much to offer God, do we? Maybe you have something to offer Him, but I do not. The thing is that we need to come to Him with empty hands and allow Him to fill them. So here's a specific example of the prayer of Elijah. This comes from 1 Kings 18.36-37. And I'm reading this from the Jewish Publication Society's translation. When it was time to present the meal offering, the prophet Elijah came forward and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things that you are bidding. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, for you have turned their hearts backward. So it's the recognition, nothing to offer. Whatever he has, he has because it comes from God. And so that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about consecration services. Like Elijah, when we serve God, we do so not with what we bring him, but what he gives us and what he does through us. Remember, all we have in 
even our service comes from the gifts that God gives us the abilities, the empowering and isn't that great news because we can't do it ourselves we're dependent on Him and so He provides us everything to carry out His work He never asks of us anything that we can't do independency on Him and empowered by Him He asks us loads of stuff we can't do if we try doing it out of our own strength we can't walk one step in His ways if we try doing that out of our own strength but He doesn't expect us to we're priests because we've been consecrated and sealed into his body by the power of the Holy Spirit, not because of our worthiness. Paul says it in Ephesians 1, 11 to 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So it's the sealing of the Spirit that seals and consecrates us as priests, because what happens when we're saved? We're immediately sealed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, into the priesthood of the believers. We immediately are saints. And then we have the opportunity to be filled with His Spirit so that then we are empowered and we constantly look for His infilling because that's a, an ongoing process unlike the indwelling. And we are able to serve Him. Accordingly, at the last few sessions, we've been examining the responsibilities of the priesthood as they serve in the tabernacle and then really a lot of this is carried forward into the temple as well. And you'll find I will arbitrarily switch back and forth between the words, even though we're talking about the tabernacle. And so we're looking at them here specifically in conjunction with the responsibilities of what we're calling at this point the Aaronic priesthood. Because right now the priesthood is made up of Aaron and his sons. This is long before, well, within a matter of years, but still a number of years before the Levitic priesthood comes into being. And we look at this as how we as members of the spiritual priesthood of believers really have a lot of the same kinds of responsibilities but not so much from the physical perspective as more from the spiritual perspective. So in this chapter, in this area that we're looking at, we identify the following areas as one that we should wrap into our own lives. Now, one of our main responsibilities as priests is demonstrated by the altar of incense because remember that whenever the priestly service is going on whenever the tabernacle is, is in place the incense is being offered up continually and we know from scripture as we saw last time incense represents prayer and this is consistent then with our call to be in prayer constantly so we are always to be offering up this incense as priests to God. And that means prayers of repentance, prayers of praise, because remember incense is to be a pleasant aroma to him. So a lot of our prayers should be prayers of praise, shouldn't they? And then prayers of intercession. And there's a lot of intercession that needs to be going on. We need to be praying for the families of those officers that were killed two days ago. And for the other police, all the impact this has, if you were watching, you could just see the impact this had 
on the other police, the sheriff's departments, and all these people. We need to be praying for their family. We need to be praying that somehow God would use us. And for the families of these two people that were on and doing the killing. Pray for them as well. I mean, we don't know yet what the motive was, but we know the behavior was crazy. And this is what happens without the Lord. So there's a, so we have prayer, intercessory prayer, that needs to be going on right here for people. Praying for rain would be nice. We have one annual park cleanup a year. We're in a drought. It rained this Saturday. We had to cancel. Come on. That's ridiculous. Not that I'm complaining because I didn't want to do it anyway. But, you know, I had to be the first one out there to reserve the park at 8.30 in the morning, so I'm not unhappy. But, you know, so we need, you know, there are lots of, we need to be praying for the body. We need to be praying for the leadership. We need to be praying for our government. Boy, does it need prayer. I don't know if we can pray enough. Amen. <laughs> this is the major part of our role as priests is intercessory prayer. If we're not in communication with the Father, how do we expect Him to be able to use us? It's a conversation. Dr. McGee identifies three areas as relating to the priestly role, and they're all acts of worship, because prayer is an act of worship. He says, only incense and a certain kind of incense was to be placed upon this altar. The priest would go in and burn incense every time. They would light the lamps in the lampstand. The altar speaks of prayer, and we know this because the Bible uses incense as a symbol of prayer and praise in many places. David, for example, in Psalm 141.2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. The second area that needs to be taken into consideration is recognition of the price paid for our salvation. This is why we pray in Jesus' name, because we only have access to God through the cross. With the atonement money, the money that each person had to bring to the temple, we saw that one price is required for all men. Without Christ, there is no access to God. There is one way, and we keep saying this, and we keep being called judgmental and all of these things. And all I can say is that our response always needs to be, don't. Take it up with me. I'm just telling you what God said. If you've got a problem, talk to him. I'm not the one saying this. No, and this means another insulting comment, right? There is no way to have your prayers heard if you're not making them through Christ, except for the prayer of acceptance of salvation. It's the only one. And he says, the second requirement of worship is that everyone that worship had to be redeemed. We hear a great deal today about public worship. Actually, there's no such thing. Only the redeemed can worship, but the way is open to whosoever will for redemption. The third point we saw is the need for cleansing. We need to take off the daily accumulated dirt, sin that occurs in our lives. Again, without forgiveness for our sins, we have no communication with God. Now, remember the two distinctions. One, we all our sins are paid for and we're forgiven. We're positionally righteous in Christ. That has to do with where we're going in eternity. But then there's the practical issue of our sins daily that break off, not relationship, but fellowship with God. 
and interfere with our ability to serve him, grieving of the spirit. And those are the ones that we have to deal with on a daily basis to have ongoing fellowship and ongoing empowering, we need to be cleansed on a daily basis. The last thing he has to say in this area is says, we get dirty in this world. We cannot worship until we're cleansed. You are to confess your sins to Jesus Christ. I think that every Sunday before we go inside the church, we should confess our sins for the week. Don't tell me that you don't get dirty. Your eyes get dirty. Your mind gets dirty. Your hands get dirty. Your feet get dirty. You get dirty all right. One of the big troubles in our church today is that there's too much spiritual B.O. We need to confess our sins to him. And was before we go into worship, God does not accept worship until it comes from a cleansed heart, nor will accept service except from a cleansed heart. This is why we need to keep short accounts. Because that way we are able to serve more effectively. So... This is this all rolls into our understanding of ourselves as priests. I think if we think in those terms, it can have a dramatic impact impact on the way we live on a daily basis, can it? And it's something that we don't normally think of, and that's why I've been stressing it so much over the last few weeks. The fact is, he uses fully committed priests. And if we're going to be active and busy for him, we have to be fully committed, right? Not caught up in the world, but serving in the world. Just look at what's going on. The opportunities are multitudinous in this day. As people are riding the roller coaster of the stock market, as people are fretting about this, as people are fret- as people are sick to death of these ads, no matter who's putting them on. It's plenty of opportunities to talk to people about what's real. And none of this stuff is real. In the long run, none of it matters. Because Christ is in control. God disposes and proposes as he sees fit. And unfortunately, from the looks of it, it says he gives us the government we deserve, which is a scary thought. Our confidence is in him. And so going back to the verses that we've constantly been looking at, 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So like this. If we live the reality that we're built up like a house of stone, then the world can huff and puff all at once, but it won't be able to blow us down. So, picking back up where we were, which is the anointing and consecrating of the priests of Aaron, really, in a sense, for the first time, as they move into service. So, as with the incense, there's also special instructions for the manufacture of the special oil that God directs to be used for the anointing of the tabernacle and the priesthood. That too has to be done exactly by his recipe. And it wasn't to be used for any other purpose. And a failure to obey this injunction was another one that had the death penalty tied to it. So I'll read this to you. It's in Exodus chapter 30 verses 20 to 33. And this comes from the complete Jewish Bible is the translation here. Adonai said to Moisha, take the best spices, 50 shekels of myrrh, that's 12 pounds, 
half this amount, 250 shekels of aromatic cinnamon, 6 pounds, 250 shekels of aromatic cane, 500 shekels of cassia, use the sanctuary standard, and one gallon of olive oil, and make them into a holy anointing oil. Blend it and perfume it as would an expert perfume maker. It will be anointing oil. Use it to anoint the tent of the meeting, the ark for the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the menorah and all its utensils, the incense altar, the altar for burnt offerings and all its utensils, and the basin with its base. You are to consecrate them. They will be especially holy, and whoever touches them will be holy. Then you are to anoint Aaron and his sons. You are to consecrate them to serve me in the office of the Kohanim. Tell the people of Israel, this is to be an anointing oil for me through all your generations. It will not be used for anointing a person's body, and you are not to make any like it with the same composition of ingredients. It is holy, and you are to treat it as holy. Whoever makes any like it or uses it in any, on any unauthorized person is to be cut off from his people. Again, remember, God is being very strict here because he's saying, Holiness requires separation unto me, and separation unto me requires being obedient to all my injunctions. What he's saying to all all peoples and all the future is, there is no other way to me than by the way that I have said. And it doesn't matter how much it looks like it, how close it comes. It doesn't work. And if you're going to serve me as holy, then you have to be wholly dedicated, wholly obedient. And so this is the formula. And this is how it's to be used. And it's to be used for nothing else. And none of these knockoff perfume houses that now make the multiply expensive perfumes for really cheap prices that you can find coming out of China would be cut out of Israel if they made a knockoff of this perfume and anointing oil. So just as the priesthood and the tabernacle were anointed to the service of God through the through blood, now through the oil, so we're dedicated, anointed, sealed to God through the anointing, sealing of the Holy Spirit. And so we're anointed. John speaks of this in First John two twenty seven. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need of anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, and is no lie just that it has been taught to you. Abide in him. It is interesting, isn't it, the concept that the Holy Spirit provides can provide understanding of the word. And where the Holy Spirit has not provided those who can teach, he can teach you himself. And we all know the stories, and some of them may be uh, anecdotal, I don't know, but of, of people that are discovered who have clear understanding and it's clear that the Holy Spirit is, the, that they've been taught by God because they haven't had access to any other sources. But we also know from Hebrews he provides all these other, and from Paul he provides all these other sources for us. But again, he doesn't need them. That's the way he chooses to lead us. So, as to the, again, to focus is on the fact that we're called to service and God provides all we need that we can't bring it to ourselves. We can't build it ourselves to be able to serve. Even, even where we create programs, if they're not led by the Holy Spirit, if they're just programs, when we first 
try to we're opening our own church back way back in the day. We got a call from all these church services that wanted to set us up on phone trees and all these things that are business practices that are going to help us grow and get our numbers up. And I said, look, as appealing as that might be, the fact is when we're talking church growth, we're talking about people growing in the Lord. We're not talking about numbers. And if you start using worldly methods instead of depending on the Lord, how are you going to know if he wants you to do this or you're just simply good marketers? And so we trusted him for it, and we closed the doors after three years because that's not what his goal was for us. And that was okay, which is fine with me because I may be a pastor, but church planting is not on my list of things to do ever again. (laughs) Fortunately, I don't think he's going to ask me. Yes? I have a question. So so um, during this line, um, like like, uh, right now, we're forgiven by Christ. But also, we repent. We don't forgive it by other people around us. Oh, yeah, we need to make it right, yeah. Uh, for these people, <laughs> if they repent, are they forgiven? Oh, it's like the people that got drunk cut off from the people? Um, they might be forgiven, but we don't see any way that they were let back among the people. These were, remember, these were ceremonial, these were statements that God's making to try to protect the nation. So he sets up standards. So they might have been accepted by God again. But the fact is that we don't see anything where it says, and if they repent down the line, you can let them back into the nation. The idea here is he's trying to protect the holiness of the, of the sacrificial system. And, that, and he's saying, you are cut off from me if you don't come to me on my terms, which is really what we say today, isn't it? Because that's to the unbeliever. We're saying if you don't come to God on his terms, you are cut off from him eventually in final judgment. So these are pictures of those same truths. So if somebody rejects Christ to the point of closing the door on their salvation, then they will then their heart their hearts to the point where they will not be saved. If they repent, if they're capable of repenting, and that's only through the Holy Spirit's leading, then they can still come to Christ. But I think Scripture does give you the sense that at some point some people harden their hearts so much that they will not. It's not a question that they cannot, it's they will not. Just like Pharaoh's heart was so hardened that he would not let Israel go. God encouraged him in the direction he wanted to go. He didn't change his mind. So I don't think they were let back in because he's trying to protect them in the early days so that they will not run into the problems they did because of all their disobedience down the line. Now, symbolically, the altar, the tab, the incense, the tabernacle, <coughs> washing, all is talking about obedience. If you're going to serve God, you have to be obedient. This is especially true as it relates to the recognition that Christ is the only way to God. You could only come to the tabernacle through that front gate that we talked about weeks ago. There, you couldn't climb over the fence. Didn't work. The way is narrow. And that has not changed for all the fact that some movements in Christendom are trying to become politically correct and soften things. God's standards have never changed. There is only one way. That's the message we have to get out. We are tolerant because what we say is you can believe whatever you want to believe. That's your choice. We're not going to make you believe anything. But there are consequences to believing what you want to believe. And the consequences are an eternity in judgment if you don't come to God on his terms. 
and so much of the attitude of people, even if they believe there is a God, is, I'm nice enough to give him some kind of recognition. He should be grateful and accept me because I'm nice enough to notice him. It doesn't work that way. And that's what he's making true, or making clear here. So then, this, this is really a national service. Remember, the priesthood eventually, as it's developed, becomes the, the leaders of the nation in their relationship to God, even by the time you get up to the kings. The kings have responsibilities to serve certain aspects of the nation, but they also fall under the authority of the priesthood because the priesthood is the representative or it becomes the, that which stands between the people and God. Now, by the time you get to the kings, then you also have the prophets. The prophets have a specific role of uh, getting into kings' faces. Um, and I'm sure the priests were perfectly happy to let the prophets have that responsibility because who wants to get into the face of the king, right? But the fact of the matter is, is this is the next chapter, chapter 31, and so we enter this chapter, it expands on the number of those who were involved with tabernacle service. Obviously, it wasn't just Aaron and his sons in the building or in the serving. For example... Again, going back to the complete Jewish Bible, in Exodus 31, 1-11, we read, Adonai said to Moshe, I have singled out the child, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, this is the grandfather of Ben-Hur, of the tribe of Yehuda, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding and knowledge concerning every kind of artistry. He is the master of designing gold, silver, bronze, cutting precious stones to be set, wood carving, and any other craft. He must have learned some interesting things back in Egypt. I have also appointed his assistant, Oliav, the son of Ashimashaka, and that's probably about as far off as I'm going to get, of the tribe of Dan. Moreover, I have endowed all the craftsmen with the wisdom to make everything I have ordered you, the tent of the meeting, the ark of the testimony, the ark cover, all above it, all of the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, the pure menorah and all its utensils, the incense altar, the altar for burnt offerings and all its utensils, the basin and its base, the garments for officiating, the holy garments for Haran, the Kohan, and the garments for his sons, so that they can serve in the office of Kohan, the anointing oil and the incense of aromatic spices for the holy places, they are to make everything just as I ordered you. A lot of artisans, these aren't made by painting men, these aren't made by simple carpenters, all this is done by craftspeople. So that everything is beautifully and perfectly done. And God identified the individually given special gifts for the construction of the tabernacle. This individual is Bazal, one of the four bearers. Notice that even those abilities we normally identify as skills, though, are gifts from God. He says, I have given these. You know, we talk about the difference between gifts and talents. As if the gifts come from God, the talents, you know, we inherited from somebody genetically. And there probably is some truth to that, but on the other hand, they all come from God. They're just, and by the way, they're used differently. I mean, I had talent, I was a good accountant, okay, and a good administrator. I didn't like doing it, but I was good at it. 
those are skills. Some of that I learned, some of it was talent, whatever. But gifts are those things that I use differently than those, and eventually I got out of that business. Thank you, God. But it all comes from God. Because all those years of doing all those things was where I worked on and strengthened those gifts that God has me using now. So I had to do those things to be able to do these things. So it all comes from God and the opportunities. And we complain, well, I don't like working at McDonald's. I wouldn't either. The smell of grease. I worked in a popcorn factory one whole summer. I couldn't eat popcorn for years after that. <laughs> but you'll learn things there. And if you're there because that's where God wants you and you're there to be serving Him, then you will be blessed. There's not one job you can't take that you won't receive as a blessing. I tell this to young people. I worked as a janitor. I started by cleaning 22 floors of toilets. There is nothing we can't learn from. Sometimes we learn some things we didn't want to know, but that's okay. And so we need to emphasize this to ourselves, with young people, wherever God has us, is where we're supposed to be today. Doesn't mean we'll be there forever. But that's where it's supposed to be today. Parents, eventually, you'll get them out of the house. Trust me. And they'll come back. Oh, with theirs. But anyway... So these artisans were responsible for all the work needed to build the temple, its furniture, the garments, everything. This is sort of like Paul's teaching, the multiple parts of the body to carry out the work of the body. There's different responsibilities to accomplish it. It also serves as a warning. God gives us specific gifts. We are not to lust after somebody else's gift. Believe me, it's not all it's cracked up to be. The grass isn't greener, but you will get the most satisfaction out of doing what God's called you to do, not doing what God's called somebody else to do. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 14-18, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot says, because I have not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But it is God who has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. You may want to keep reading that passage, by the way. Anyway, the point is that God, we are to serve God however we are called to be. In whatever role he calls us. And that's good. Because he knows better than anybody else where we fit based on how he has gifted us and how he has made us. And believe me, over the years, I had one gentleman that came to me and said, you know, I really want to go into the ministry, but my wife doesn't agree to it. And my answer to him was, if this is where the Lord is leading, you have to trust and depend and wait till he convinces your wife before you can do so. By the way, that's how I knew it was time to go in because my wife of all people said, hey, you need Okay, I guess that's what done. The other thing, though, when I was talking to this guy in my mind, I was saying, and the reason your wife doesn't want you to is because God hasn't called you to it. That's not your calling. You don't belong in the ministry. And the last thing we need in the ministry is more people that don't belong in it. Yes. As an example of a church I went to previously where family was uh, going to go into the ministry and they wound up getting a divorce. And I don't know if it was over that or, or what it was, but it can't happen. That is not the service you go into unless you have your whole family support. 
period. Or it's going to be a disaster. Now we run into some people's favorite one, and that is the whole issue of Sabbath worship. I saw some very interesting things on that as I'm going through this from some churches talking about when did God change the Sabbath to Sunday? He didn't. And they're saying he didn't because you're supposed to worship on Saturday. Others say he changed the Sabbath to Sunday at the cross or at Resurrection Sunday. No, he didn't. The fact of the matter is this last section expands on this whole issue of keeping the Sabbath. And along with circumcision... Sabbath keeping was given uniquely to Israel as a sign of their relationship to God. Now, does that mean somebody can't worship on the Sabbath? No. But it means that that's not a requirement. It was given to Israel as a requirement for them. It was a unique relationship. And we talked about that quite a bit when we were in the Decalogue, but I'll touch on it here again. And this section is Exodus 31:12 to 18 where we read Adonai said to Moshe tell the people of Israel you are to observe my Sabbath for this is a sign between me and you through all your generations so that you will know that I am Adonai who sets you apart from me therefore you are to keep my Sabbath because it is kept apart from you everyone who treats it as ordinary must be put to death For whoever does any work on it is to be cut off from his people. On six days work will be done, but the seventh day is Shabbat for the complete rest, set apart for Adonai. Whoever does any work on the day of Shabbat must be put to death. The people of Israel are to keep the Shabbat, to observe Shabbat through all generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the people of Israel forever. For in six days Adonai made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he stopped working and rested. When he had finished speaking to Moshe on the Mount Sinai, Adonai gave him two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, inscribed by the finger of God. So it's a unique relationship. And God made it clear that it was a national sign. You want to talk about Blue Sundays? The whole nation was shut down. Aside from the issue of keeping the first day of the week, we do that because that's the sign of the resurrection. The sabbatic principle, and I talked about that before, one day out of seven is a day of rest. That was done in creation. That's applicable to all. And as believers, we keep the first day of the week because of the resurrection. But because of circumstances, some people are not able to do that. But they still have to set aside one day of the week. What day, Paul talks about, the days aren't necessarily important. What day is what day works for you. If you work Sunday through Friday, then maybe it will end up being the Sabbath on Saturday that you keep. That's not the issue. But the issue is we don't keep the Sabbath. We keep the first day of the week under the sabbatic principle. And so... But the failure to keep it was an ultimate judgment. And remember, it expanded in sabbatic years and finally the year of Jubilee. And it was Israel's failure to keep the sabbatic years and the year of Jubilee that led to God casting them out of the land altogether. And it could lead to the death penalty as well. And so this is an event that has been kept 
and is still kept in Israel. Well, what's really sad, of course, is that among the Orthodox, the Sabbath has become a burden rather than a blessing. Of course, Jesus talks about this when he talks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. To be a time of rest and a time of fellowship and a time of rejoicing in God. So this passage ends with God giving the tablets to Moses that are going to be the Ten Commandments. And of course, you can see what happens with that when we get a little further along. And so the question becomes, why would Moses break the tablets? Which is what he does before he comes into campus, if you want to read further ahead. Most of our people in Israel are still agnostics. They're not even conservative Jews. A lot of them are non-believers. There are more non-believing Jews today than there are even ones who sort of think they're following the Old Testament. So, keeping all of this in mind... The idea here is that God provides for all we are to do to serve Him. So how has He provided you to serve Him? Same music. Music, okay. He's gifted you with music and you use that to serve Him. Yeah. Children. <laughs> I think He provided them to train you. Oh, well, children in my, in my mind, but not adopting these children. Yeah. That's a ministry. I've done a lot of reading because we get people in for the practice and it's always under best circumstances that's a challenge to minister to adopted children. That's under best circumstances. These days it's usually not best. So that's a ministry opportunity. Of course, parenting is a ministry opportunity anyway. God gives people children so they know how they behave to Him. Especially when they're two. <laughs> how else has He gifted you? Now, I know you all have gifts. You're sitting out there quietly. Yes? It could be like in, uh, let's say, a gift of maybe encouragement, mm -hmm. go to a job, and, mm -hmm. you know, a person might even take their own gift for granted, not even realizing that they are an encouragement to others. You can mm -hmm. be blessing just by being an example or just uh, building someone else up, a co-worker, encouraging them, yes. and, and therefore you're glorifying God, even if you don't speak yeah, I don't think we necessarily have to be able to label our gifts. I was a big fan, I think, in the 80s, taking inventory so you could figure out what your gift was. I think if we're walking with the Lord and serving Him, we're going to be using our gifts, like you're suggesting, sometimes without even realizing we are doing so. It's about walking with Him, really. But that doesn't mean at times we don't know where He's given us gifts and or responsibilities. Anybody else? Or yes. I have adopted about four children, like this gentleman here, and don't realize how God made us. I think the dilemmas with adopted children are extremely different from biological, and if they come with a lot of problems, they'll deal with the problems. And I often have to take a, a deep breath because my youngest son is is that's this year's thing. You do, and you have to remember that God has set needs, and it's real hard to remember that when we want to take over. When you're in the middle of it, yeah. yeah it, it, it does. And that is true ministry. Those who are called to that kind of ministry versus those who adopt kids as uh, fashion accessories. 
which yeah. seems to be what's going on today. Which, if you can afford them as fashion accessories, you can afford somebody else to have to deal with them too. Yeah. So. Well, and that's the thing. God puts us in difficult situations, whatever they are, to strengthen our dependency on Him. And often the very gifts He gives us are put us in those situations that we have to depend on Him. The fact we're gifted in an area is not synonymous with it being easy to do it. It simply means that's where God has called us with all it costs. Because if you look at Paul, you look at any of the apostles, they were gifted in a lot of areas, but boy, easy isn't the word I would use with any of them. And uh, the fact it's hard doesn't mean it's not your gift or your role. Now, I had somebody who was in the ministry came to me and said, I never find any satisfaction that's nothing but awful and stress and hard all the time. I said, then you need to reconsider if that's where you belong. Because hard it's supposed to be. No satisfaction, that's not supposed to be happening. Anybody else? How have you seen God gift you and how have you used those gifts? Yes. Um, so, um, I have a master's degree in fine arts. And uh, at that time when I was going to school and getting this, like, I don't know, I like it, but, you know, I don't know how I'm going to end up using it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but the months later on, uh, um, I'm not from this country. I came from Japan. And me and my four children become homeless, completely homeless. We're thrown out on the street, and no house, no money, nothing at all. And, uh, and then here in the United States, government didn't support me at all. Mm-hmm. I went to the welfare office, I asked them, this is the situation, I went to the court, asked them to, you know, get some kind of support coming in, and didn't give me anything at all. And then it's okay, well, let me get, me and my kids, let me go back to Japan. And I do have family who can help me and support me. And they said no, because uh, at that time, during that time, there's a hate and law that separates Japan and the United States. So because of that, I can't do it. So I was just homeless, just absolutely no food, no money, nothing at all. And I just really have to rely on God's mercy during that time, you know. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? And then the youngest was just a newborn baby, maybe about a month old. And um, I had absolutely fun with cats. And then, so I was just like, just, all I can do is pray. <laughs> God, you've got to you know, make me, you know, give me something, you know, so, so I can provide my kids. So later on, I decided to do social. I just going to do my own business. So I started selling my service to the other children which I can do as teaching arts to children. Mm-hmm. And children, so that provides me and able to provide my children. Mm-hmm. So I think that for some reason that God gave me that gift, mm-hmm. you know, way ahead, not knowing this is going to happen. <laughs> but when, at that time, I didn't know I didn't use that gift that God has given to me. But then later on, the gift that He has given to me was able to use to you know, to be a provider for my children. And then still, I have to be a provider. doing the same thing. I think if you look back on your lives, you can see how God has taken you and things you've learned and things you've done that you may not even recognize, how you can see the echoes of them and what you're doing now. That at the time, you wonder, why am I doing this? And I'm 
And now you can see there were reasons for all of that that are playing out in the present. And yeah, you don't know why you're doing what you're doing. But God does. It's why even though I do a little bit of job counseling stuff, I'm never a big fan of five-year programs. Because if you're walking with God, unless you've got some divine revelation, your five-year program and his five-year program are very likely not the same thing. And so, believe me, I did not get where I am in a straight line or planned to end up here. And if we trust in God, then he will... If you do the five-year thing, that's okay. I'm not telling you not to feel comfortable doing it. I'm just saying it doesn't work for me. The, thing, the real issue is, are we trusting, are we walking, are we depending, are we going closer? If we're the priests we're going to be, then we have to remember, what is our primary responsibility? It is the first and foremost, it is to glorify God. And if we're glorifying God, that means we're being blessed, right? And we may be glorifying God in how we're depending on Him in difficult times. That may be how we're glorifying Him. Okay? Paul prayed three times, Lord, take away this storm from my flesh. And we all know Paul didn't have enough faith for he had been healed. No, God kept it there and got and Paul got it. He says, I've got an ego problem. I have a pride issue. And God kept this in me to keep me humble, because otherwise I wouldn't be usable. Because Paul was brilliant. And you get the feeling Paul may have known he was brilliant. And God does it and it's real easy when you're brilliant to Go off track and be impressed with your own wisdom. And so God and Paul had enough wisdom to understand God was making sure he didn't have that opportunity. So, look at your life. Whatever's going on, look at your priesthood. Look at where God has brought you and how he's prepared you. Look at how he went all the ceremony and all the ritual and everything they went through to prepare, what, to prepare these priests for service before they could even serve to prepare the tabernacle, to prepare all the instruments and all the furniture and everything before it could even be used. And somebody say to me, I don't know how, you know, I think I feel like God should, I should be doing something for God. And I said, maybe just growing is what you're supposed to be doing right now. What, Moses sat on the backside of the wilderness for 40 years with a bunch of sheep before he could lead the sheep of Israel, right? He was in the 80s when he got started. Fortunately, God doesn't do that to us because we don't live as long as Jesus went and he started his ministry. He was in the late 20s, early 30s before he actually started his ministry that we read anything about, right? Paul actually had to sit on his hands for a while after God changed him before he could immediately go into service. God is not in any rush. God's concerned about process. God's concerned about our growth. God's concerned about doing what needs to be done to make us more usable. And while we're being used, he'll continue that process. When your kids are breaking your heart, because even when they're well-behaved, they do that sooner or later. I mean, it just, you know, goes with being a parent, right? Then think about how we treat God. That's why he allows it to happen. So we remember that we do exactly the same thing. If you really love me, God, you'd give me. Fill in the blank. We do that, right? Throw tantrums. We do that. And so God provides children to remind you what you look like. So God's concern for our sanctification, for our growth, for the spiritual process, much more than he's concerned about the results, because those are in his hands anyway. Right? Makes it interesting. 
so, maybe the most important thing we do as priests, along with praying, is praising. David says in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along its paths to the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.